Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. You know what that means? It means smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. Like you, I have been so grateful and so thankful for frontline workers during the COVID crisis. Let's just talk about the frontline workers at SickKids, which is one of the world's best children's hospitals. SickKids doctors also work behind the scenes on incredible breakthroughs to help our kids and generations to come. Listen to their inspiring stories in a new season of the popular podcast called Sick Kids Versus. Each episode explores a major sick kids discovery, like, well, a virus-fighting supermolecule or a cure for hard-to-treat cancers. Just visit sickkidsfoundation.com slash podcast or search Sick Kids Versus and spell versus VS. So Sick Kids VS. You'll be amazed at what you learn. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. That means Bruce Anderson is sitting in his little studio in Ottawa. I'm in Stratford. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you? Peter, I'm so good. Wednesdays are like one of my seven favorite days, one of my seven favorite mornings of the week. And I just can't wait for this morning's conversation. I've been looking forward to it since we talked about what we were going to talk about. So have I. But first of all, I'm looking at the weather forecast, and it's remarkably similar, even though we're kind of distant, Stratford from Ottawa. It's it's pretty much the same, which is calling for a lot of rain for this week. Now, rain's good if you're a farmer, and you... Radishes, I'll tell you, the radishes are just looking up at the sky going, bring it. We bring went, it uh, you wouldn't believe the number of letters I get from bridge listeners who want to know how the radish farmer's doing. It's just going Now, is, it like, is, is anything like coming up through the ground yet? Yeah, yeah. I'm not allowed to kind of describe the location or anything like that or the number of times I check on it, but uh, I do check on it, and um, things are going good. Things are going good. We're about a week or two from um, the next bunch of crops that we're going to plant, and we'll keep people posted for sure. And there will be pictures eventually of the arugula and the radishes, which will be our two first products to show up. And so what's in the ground already? Radishes? Radishes, arugula, lettuce, garlic, potatoes. Yeah, we got some stuff going. You've never done anything like this before. I think I might have helped my dad when I was seven, but I don't completely remember it. But I've never done anything like this before, no. And I'm very motivated by my daughter, Molly, who, um, you know, when she sinks her her mind into something, she's a genius. So she just, um, she knows everything now about soil quality and sunlight and the zone that we're in. And it's, it's fascinating for me. So wait, I'm just the labor. She's the brains. Yeah. But where do you learn all this stuff from? I mean, obviously Molly's got it, but do, do you like watch videos or read books or something? Hey, you know or what? What? I think she, I think she gets books. I think she goes online. I think she uses videos and then, this farmer that we're renting this patch from, he's a crusty old uh, Irish, French Canadian guy, and he dispenses uh, lessons in farming to us, but they come in um, two minute sentences and they're filled with expletives and they're so colorful <laughs> and they're so memorable. We should get him on the podcast away. here. 
Oh my God. We just walk away from every one of those lessons, just shaking our heads and going, we should record that because this guy is some storytelling farmer. Now what's the, what's the object here? Is it just basically to feed you and the family or is it, are are you going commercial? Are you going to be, are you going to have one of those little booths at the, the market in, in downtown Ottawa? Well, you know, I think the first, the first thing was, just think, what's a thing that we could do together that sort of breaks the routine of the working at our desks and Zoom calls and all that kind of thing and gets us outdoors in a safe way. And so this, you know, I've, I've long wanted to see if we could grow something. And, and she was into the idea right from the get-go. She likes food. She likes cooking. She likes uh, learning about nutrients and vegetables and everything. So I was, everybody was laughing at me for the last three years. I was saying, I'm going to find somebody who's going to rent us a little piece of land. And I would see their eyes rolling and them going, yeah, sure you are. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see it when we see it. And so finally this year, I just, I decided this is the year I can't just do the same thing every day. I have to do something else. So on the question of what we're going to do with the food, in addition to eat it, we're going to, we, we, because um, one of Molly's skills is that she's a graphic designer. Uh, we've talked about whether or not we can, <laughs> and this is not to make money, but to see the power of marketing. If we create a brand and we have a brand in mind and she's going to do some design work and we're going to see if we can find uh, those people who will look at our radishes with the brand on them or surrounding them and, pay a premium price, which we'll donate to a good cause, but we do want to see if we can get $4 for a little bunch of radishes or something like that, just because the marketing is good. And obviously the radishes will be good too. Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt that listeners to the bridge will pay $4 for a clump of radishes, but I don't know how you get it to them when they're all over the world. But well, we're going to have to cross that bridge. No yeah. pun intended when we get to it, but uh, we're, you know, we're heading in the right direction. No, it's not, it sounds good. Do, do you do you wear like a like a hat, like a, one of those farmer type hats that I got know, farmer pro, shirts pro, promote too. tractors and and all that uh, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've always loved country music, so I'm not short of farmer style shirts. Um, and I got a lot of hats, and so yeah, yeah. I, I like you got you got our friend Kelly Prescott playing in your uh, your headphones while you're doing all this. We. Well, you know, when we're out there right now, it's it's just kind of listening to the birds and the rushing water because it's right beside a creek. But um, we we are going to, you know, in the hot summer days, we're going to take a speaker out there. We're going to listen to some music, probably some Kelly Prescott. And we're thinking about, you're going to love this, Peter, a barn dance. I want to have a barn dance. Have in you the got a barn? When it's safe. You don't have a barn. No, no, haven't picked out a barn yet, but we're going to find a barn with the Prescotts and all of our friends who endure country music or love it. We love it. Some endure it because they like to kind of hang out. And, and a barn dance just feels like a great way to cap this pandemic and make it the last pandemic too, hopefully. Yeah, I'll say. Okay, well, I'm glad we had that update, and I look forward to uh, to more updates as we we watch this incredible project unfold. All right, mm. for a topic for today, I like this idea because you're a uh, you can draw on lots of expertise on on this. Uh, tonight's a big night for Joe Biden. He gets to speak. It's it's kind of the State of the Union, although they don't call it the State of the Union because 
it's his first speech to Congress and State of the Union is usually in January and here we are in April, almost May. And so it is a speech to the joint houses of the U.S. Congress. So it's a big deal where he kind of outlines where he thinks he is after 100 days and where he's going. And, uh, you know, the uh, uh, those on the in their seats at the, in the joint session will uh, react one way or another. But anyway, a lot of pressure on him and a lot of prep for him in this big speech. It's a big deal. All the networks will cover it. So I want to get a sense from you on on what's involved in the preparation for a speech like that, especially when you've actually had a chance for a couple of months to watch Biden um, in terms of, of how he goes. Now, before I get you to start on this, I'm going to tell a little story of my own. There's nothing about Joe Biden. But it's interesting because I, I, I first thought of this idea for, for a topic today after watching Doug Ford's performance last Thursday when he did his kind of statement from his mother's garden uh, and a half news conference, half statement, and it was pretty much panned. And you wonder, like, well, who prepped him for that? And how did he get ready for that? Well, here's my story about Doug Ford, um, who I don't know well, I haven't covered well, but in the midst of the whole Rob Ford thing a few years ago, uh, I got a call from uh, his office saying, we want to do an interview. We want to do it today. And we want to do it in like an hour from now. And I hadn't been, you know, I kind of obviously sort of followed the Rob Ford story, but for the most part, I was involved in, you know, national stuff and international stuff. I wasn't really watching the local story, but uh, as much as I was watching it as much as anybody was watching because it looked like a trained wreck unfolding there. Um, So I said, sure, we'll come over. And we went over to the to City Hall. And we were in, you know, we had to sit in his office for like two or three hours because he was in a council meeting. And finally he comes in. And I assumed that he was going to come in with his, you know, staff and his you know, comms director and whatever. But no, there's only one person with him, Doug Ford. So it's Rob Ford and Doug Ford. And Doug Ford introduces himself and says, I wanted him to do this and I've got him ready for this. And I want to sit with him while you're doing this interview. And I said, well, you know, it's really, it's just, it's just with him. And he said, well, that's okay. You know, I'm just going to sit beside him. So it was like he was there for some kind of support or moral support. And uh, anyway, we did this interview. It wasn't the kind of interview that uh, a lot of the uh, Ford Hawks in, uh, in in the Toronto media wanted. They wanted to drag him out, punch out uh, that you know, Rob Ford was going to be lying on the floor after it was all over. That's, that's not my style. I wanted to go. I wanted to try and get some stuff out of him, but I was playing long ball uh, in, in the sense that I was I needed. I wanted to try and get some commitments out of him. He was clearly still on drugs and booze. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he, um, he ended up in that interview promising that he was off both drugs and booze. And if he ever went back on it, that would be reason for why he shouldn't be mayor anymore. So I thought, okay, well, I actually got something out of him. I mean, the interview went on for, I don't know, 45 minutes and there was other stuff in it, but nothing in particular. Uh, for me, uh, this was an achievement. This was playing long ball. Okay, we got a commitment out of him. Let's see whether he keeps it. And sure enough, two months later, it was clear 
And he admitted he was back on booze and drugs, and within a few weeks after that, he was gone. He'd resigned. Um, but what struck me most of all was Doug Ford's role in it. He was, he organized it. He wanted this, um, you know, television appearance, and he did a couple of others around the same time. I think he did an American one as well. Um, but Doug Ford was the comms guy. So it wouldn't shock me to learn that the comms guy last week or the comms woman last week for Doug Ford was Doug Ford. That that was his strategy, the whole way that thing unfolded. And I don't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me, given the experience I'd had a couple of years before. Anyway, that spurred me on to thinking, okay, let's deal with with Joe Biden, um, or really the whole topic of how you prep somebody for a big moment, for a big speech, big interview, big whatever. You've done it with lots of different politicians over the years of different stripes, um, different parties. And I want to get a sense of how that unfolds. So start me off on that and we'll uh, see where we go. Well, you know, Peter, I've changed the way that I approach that over the years. I think that when I first started doing it, which would have been 25 years ago, um, you sort of have this sense of, well, the, the person who I'm going to help, they must not be very good at it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking me for help or I wouldn't be offering help. So I must have some very deliberate things that I must tell them to do, even if those things take them outside of their normal personality, even if those things make them feel kind of uncomfortable, that there must be just one good way to do this. And if I can, if I can describe it to them, make them rehearse that way of doing it, that then they'll be really successful in politics. And over the years, I've learned that's not really the best way to do this. First of all, that most people who have some success in politics actually have, you know, a good mind. They've got a personality that's engaging. And so my approach these days, to the extent that I I talk to uh, people in politics and public life and occasionally in the business community about how they're approaching public speaking or interviews is, is to help them kind of be a, a, a more effective version of themselves, basically to kind of let their personality be evident to people. Um, and also to help them understand the power of choosing words carefully. So this is something, the choosing words carefully thing is something that is increasingly important because a lot of organizations surround people who are speaking on behalf of an organization with words that have a flatness, a sameness, a safety aspect to them. Their language, their lingo um, is kind of designed so that nobody's going to look at a sentence and say, well, that's too edgy. Um, But in fact, what you really want often is language that really punches through this sense of sameness that comes out of a lot of organizations. I remember um, when I was, I think, seven years old, it was 1963, um, and I've referred back to it many times since, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which for many people is the most powerful and important speech uh, that happened in their lives. It, it might well be the, the the most powerful and important speech in my life. And I think 
you know, so I was kind of reminding myself what I what I found so powerful and what other people found so powerful. First of all, he did it in front of 250,000 people. They were expecting 100,000, which was, you know, just a daunting number of people to imagine standing in front of and then delivering a speech with so much passion and so much emotion that was really him. That was his personality coming out. He was throwing every ounce of his guts and his heart into it. But he also used words that meant something, that meant something powerful, that cut through. And so um, I'll stop by saying, for me, I like to help people let the best aspects of their personality come through. And I like to really encourage them to ditch words that have a, a kind of a flatness, a sameness, a jargony quality, and find those words that people will actually pay attention to. And, and you and I were joking about this the other day. I was thinking it might be time for us to write a book together about something called the word diet or something like that, how to talk when nobody's listening, because we are living in a different time and, and you really do have to look for those words that will make people have an impression of you when, when you're done talking. I think that's, um, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll write that book. You write it and you know, and it can be like my picture on the cover. Mm, that's what a what a deal. How could I turn that deal down? <laughs> here's here's my you know, my experience sometimes in in watching speeches and covering speeches and in perhaps more interviews than speeches, but still a little bit in both, is that there are times when I watch somebody up there and I know it's a big moment for them, but I get a sense that they didn't really they don't really know what it is they want to say. It's not just how to say it. It's they're not even sure what it is they want to say. You know, often I find that people want to say too much uh, or they feel like they're, they should say a lot of things. And I, you know, from my standpoint, I was trying to think about, well, what is Biden really trying to do today? And I, I think Biden has been very effective so far in part because he's understated in part because people are getting a sense of who he really is as a personality in contrast with what they'd seen with Trump, but also just that he's a kind of a, he's an emotional guy. He's a steadying influence. He's not trying to kind of rile people up all the time. He'll occasionally say things that, that really speak to the heart, but otherwise he just wants to go about his business. I think that's extremely effective, especially uh, post-Trump, and especially in the context of a pandemic. Um, one of the things that I often try to do with people is say, look, you've got 20 different themes in this speech. What's the one thing that if you had to boil it down, you really want people to remember? And I think with Biden tonight, it's that he wants to reward work, not wealth. He's basically laid out this whole idea that wealthy people are doing fine, Hardworking people aren't doing that well, and he wants to change the balance of that. All the rest of the details, you know, people will cover it, but most voters won't pay any attention. They'll just get that sense of that is what he's about if he does it well. The second thing is, and I remember somebody told me something about how you interview people, Peter, and how how well you do this one thing. And I've kind of remembered it and use it with people that I talk to about their public speaking, which is leave some space in the conversation. Let a breath happen. Don't feel as though you need to fill up every quarter second with a sound because the way that people listen 
is that they get more out of things if there's a pause, if there's a moment to kind of think about what you just heard. Or sometimes if they're just watching somebody and they're going, I think they, that question has made them think. Uh, a moment in a debate where somebody doesn't immediately kind of respond, but takes a breath, holds it for a minute, and then says what they have to say. You know this from all of your years doing this, Peter, is that all of a sudden the audience leans in. They're really rocked. They want to know what's coming next. And at the end of the day, what people are trying to get out of that is who you are, who you really are, not necessarily what you say. It's what what's kind of inside. What's that glimpse into the soul? And for politicians, that's the single most important thing. They can take a policy position, reverse it, add another one next year. You know, a lot of that matters uh, from a fundamental standpoint, but from a communication standpoint, um, you forgive a lot if you like the person, if you feel you can trust the person. Um, and you'll feel a lot better about an idea that you might not be sure of if you feel that you can trust the values of the person. And so much of how that happens is the communication style and people basically being encouraged to be themselves, not to act as though they're somebody else. And that's where, you know, the, the pause idea comes through. I, you know, I always look for a pause in an interview. I look for that moment where I'm convinced that it's real, you know, that it's not a fake pause and, and some people will try that, but that it's, it's a real pause because they really are thinking about what it is they want to say here. It was, you know, it may not have been a question they were expecting, um, but they want, and they want to make sure they, they handle it well. And so they think about it first. And it, I always look at that as a, you know, as some kind of a victory in the interview process that if I've made them think and they're not just doing the message track thing. Um, what about being over-prepared? You must have seen those yeah. over-prepared. I mean, I, I can remember David Trump talking to me about us because he was a speechwriter for, for W, for George W. Bush. And, you know, it, the speech right, it's not like one person. There was there's a team that worked on speeches, and they'd take different segments of it or different themes, and and different people would write it, and then of course the speaker would look at it and and decide what he or she wanted to keep. Um, but when you get too many people involved, and you have too much preparation, um, I assume things can uh, turn out not the way you were hoping for. Well, very much. I think the worst thing that happens is that um, the more senior an individual gets in an organization, whether it's a political party or a business or a, a group of some sort, uh, the greater the sense they have of the expectations surrounding them. And the expectations are usually in their minds. Uh, I can't let everybody down. I can't fail. I can't make a mistake. Uh, what if, uh, you know, in a debate context, for example, what if something comes up and I don't know the answer or I give the wrong answer? Um, and the problem with that is that people end up filling their heads uh, like a golfer with 25 swing thoughts. It's just not going to work. You're going to end up um, driving yourself a little bit nuts out there. And the chances of you actually making a mistake are greater when you, when you're, when you're so swamped with preparation and advice. And so I've seen situations and, and you probably have in passing as you're preparing to cover something where, you know, teams of people with, 
bunches of binders will have a lot of information. And I remember helping one political leader um, as he was preparing for the first series of really high profile debates that he was going to be involved in. And I happen to be a baseball fan. And so I used a metaphor, which is, you know what, when you get out there, try to clear your mind. Um, Try to remember that uh, this is something where people are just going to try to understand who you really are. And so don't think about, you know, all of the details of the policy, even if you think you don't, even if you're constantly grilling yourself, what do I, do I know enough about this policy or that policy? You do, you don't need to worry about it. Second thing I would say is you're a political leader. Smiling matters. People will feel confident if you look confident. And smiling is one of the most effective ways. And you can't smile all the time. And I remember you at one point, you were struggling with your golf swing just once or twice, I remember. (laughs) And you had this tip in your mind, which is that I hit that ball really well, Bruce. And I think it was because I grinned. (laughs) (laughs) It works. I'm telling you, it works. It works for a little while. (laughs) But smiling is a very kind of contagious and relaxing kind of uh, device. But the the last thing and the one I really wanted to kind of – remember for you and for the listeners is I used a metaphor saying, remember three lines like they are your 95 mile an hour fastball. And then when all else fails, if there's a lot of noise around you, if you're not sure exactly what it is that um, you need to do next, just remember those three things that you really want to land all the time. And that when you say those three things and you don't say them all together, those are your go-tos. Those are your 95 mile an hour fastballs. And those are the things that if nothing else, you want people to remember you by in this, um, in this event. And, uh, and it really worked uh, for this individual. I don't know if the same approach would work for everybody, but it really worked with this individual. And I ended up getting this lovely you know, poster signed by him thanking me for all of the fastballs and the advice about fastballs. But it was just a thought to basically say when everything else is kind of going a little sideways or you're not sure, just rear back and throw that 95 mile an hour fastball. And this one line is going to make people go, wow, that that's meaningful to me. That made an impact. I understand what he's saying. I want to talk about uh, body language and mannerisms, but first we've got to take a quick break. Are you still trying to find ways to get into the world of crypto? Well, look no further. BitBuy is Canada's number one platform for buying and selling Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. BitBuy has launched a brand new app and website with a new look, lower fees, and new coins. BitBuy is your one-stop shop to get involved and super easy to use for beginners. Visit bitbuy.ca or download the BitBuy app. Enter referral code PODCAST20 to get $20 free when you make your first deposit. Okay, we're back with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth right here on The Bridge. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge. I'm in uh, Stratford, Ontario. Um, Aside from content, um, there are mannerisms that everybody has. They're kind of natural to them. And sometimes they can be jarring or they can be, you know, off-putting to some people who are watching. Um, And I'm wondering how you deal with that. I mean, it, it could be any number of things. It could be, you know, overuse of your hands. Um, 
It could be looking too much at your notes. It could be, well, it could be any number of things. Um, and I'm wondering when you're talking with uh, and advising people how you deal with that issue, because in many cases, people don't even you know, don't even realize they're doing it, right? It just kind of happens. It's naturally. It's, it's like the phrases that some of us use too often and don't even realize we're using them. Um, but I wonder how where where mannerisms and uh, uh, things like that fit into this. Well, you know, I think there are certainly some things that if you observe people doing them, you can say that's going to be a distraction. And and so maybe you need to think about that. But for the most part, again, the, the people that I have the opportunity to talk with about this, um, they're pretty they're pretty good. And so what I try to do is actually let them self-diagnose. Uh, I work through some exercises where he's, where I ask them, you know, where do you think you are on this scale? And I, you know, maybe use 10 different scales that have to do with, you know, how they think they come across. And so I'll ask them how they think they come across on these different criteria. And then I'll say, where do you want to be? And just that process with these people who are usually extraordinarily smart people helps them identify what they want to get better at. Uh, It's not me telling them. They usually know. Um, It's very rare that somebody has no idea if they have a mannerism or a way way of, uh, of speaking that isn't really working. If they just don't know anything about that, it's, that's quite rare. So that then helped. And now a lot of people do say, you know, um, move my hands or don't move my hands. And uh, really the most important thing there is just be natural. Um, do whatever it is that brings out your personality and gives emphasis to the point that you're trying to make. Cause there's no one solution. And, and you and I, for four years, we uh, did a panel on uh, the CBC with our friend Chantal Hébert, who we now do Good Talk with. And the sad thing about Good Talk being not TV is that people don't get to see Chantal Hébert's body language the way we used to when we did that show with her. Because Chantal Hébert has body language that nobody would ever recommend uh, to, to a client if they were advising them, right? She just keels over and her, her head <laughs> kind of shrugs into her shoulders and she looks sideways at you and all of it, you get what she's doing. You understand what she's doing. And I used to have that kind of, you know, even though I, I don't know, I think I'm probably older than her. I don't know, but I always looked up to her. So it was like, oh, if I say something and she starts going into this kind of sideways shrugging motion, I'm going to get it right between the eyes afterwards. And so I always believe that being natural is the most important mannerism. Um, and it's only rarely that I will find somebody whose natural version is going to be off-putting to people, in which case, then it's really just a question of almost asking them, well, when you see this, how do you feel about it? And they'll usually say, yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> or my family doesn't like it. Or my wife or husband keeps telling me not to do it. And so then we, we figure out ways not to do it, but that's rare. Let me take our, the title of our, our show here, smoke mirrors and the truth, because I think what you see in so many public speakers is it, it it's it's a version of that title because you see some who are who are not really being themselves they fall into the smoke and mirrors category and in, in the truth category those who really are that's that's who they are 
Like if I was sitting with them, you know, in a restaurant having a dinner conversation or in a bar having a bar conversation, it would be that same person. So I don't know. I, I still think for the most part, what we see are the smoke and mirrors things, the overprepared, um, overscripted, you know, right down to the point of, of, of some of the gestures they use, you know, take this out of your pocket at this point kind of thing. Uh, hold up your pen here, whatever. Uh, I, I get a sense often when I'm watching things that that's what I'm seeing. And, you know, I know a lot of people have felt that way about our, some of our leaders. You know, a lot of people have never been that comfortable with Justin Trudeau in a formal speaking arrangement because they think it's somehow that it's phony. It's like not real. It's yeah. not the, the real guy, so to speak. And, you know, I think it's a little early to judge on Aaron O'Toole. You know, he's in under a lot of pressure um, to, you know, to bring his party back into uh, into the orbit of, uh, of possibilities. And uh, so you, I think people are still making judgments about his performance. Jagmeet Singh seems to be Jagmeet Singh. Like, uh, that seems to be the guy who you would talk to on the street is the guy who's talking to you in his his speech or his news conference. Um, but it's tricky to look at some of these people and say, am I really seeing the real person here? Well, you know, sometimes you're not. Uh, but But I do find that people in journalism historically have assumed there's more of that manufacturing than there actually is. Most of the manufacturing is organizations kind of surrounding politicians and trying to make them not make a mistake. Um, So it's not, you know, trying to make them into a confection version of themselves. It's just... um, we're going to give you some language that we've kind of stress tested and double checked and triple checked, and you're going to say it and it's going to be boring, but it's not going to get you in trouble. And, or you've got mannerisms that can be off putting for people and not everybody likes you. So why don't you just kind of stay in this narrow zone in terms of your performance? And it might not please everybody, but it won't piss off, pardon my expression, that many people. Um, so I do see a lot of that. I see a lot of language that I look at and I'm horrified by it because it's so um, so dull. Um, and I think that, that we live in a, an era where dull carries a much higher price. The, the risk of just being completely ignored uh, if you're talking about an important subject and using dull language is oh, it's enormous, that risk. Um, so I don't I don't find that there's that much attempt to manufacture some some little devices uh, to create a false impression, but I do think that there's quite a bit of effort put into taking the edge off personalities um, so that people don't see things that they might not like, and I think that's generally the wrong approach. I think generally people should um, should recognize that if you're going to attract support. If you're going to build some followership, let people see who you are. Um, Don't just talk about what you want to do. And I think Aaron O'Toole has his best days when people uh, kind of see him talking about something that's not how much he hates Justin Trudeau, but, you know, what he thinks about kind of everyday life. Um, And I think uh, Jagmeet Singh has 
has become effectively the most popular of the federal party leaders right now, in part because the amount of time that you see him being a partisan, uh, playing the role of a fighter against the other politicians is really small relative to uh, to some of the others and some of what people are are accustomed to. And I think people like that. Okay, we're out of we're out of time, but I do want to um, give you the platform just uh, for a minute or so on uh, tonight for Biden. Um, what do you, what do you um, what do you want to see? You know, as a, as a, as somebody from outside the U.S. watching this, but somebody who's a keen interest in how politicians, you know, perform on a on a night like this, what do you want to see from Joe Biden? Uh, I really felt for the last four years that America was kind of careening towards a, a really horrible situation: racial divisions, class divisions, deep polarization along political lines. Um, And I was worried that the rest of the world was kind of also headed for more conflict because of that, because America had changed the role that it was playing in the world and was only interested in pursuing its own internal political divisions. And I'm, I'm encouraged a lot by how Biden has uh, not by stealth, but by, kind of soft speaking what it is that he wants to do by encouraging people to kind of think about the consequences for others, by, by trying to get people to come together, not by forcing them rhetorically to think about coming together. But and in so doing, I think what he's done is he's, he's run that risk of leaving behind the really progressive elements of the democratic party and the risk of being, um, a target inside the Democratic Party has gone has gone up, but I think he's made a calculation that he's probably only in it for one term, and so his bigger contribution can be to heal some of those divisions in the country and help put the world on a bit safer and better path. So I'm really hoping that he uses the platform not to drive any divisions around. Um, making rich people pay for programs that will help less rich people, but rather that he, he calls to people's better angels. And he reminds them that this is how the country's um, the best aspects of America uh, came to be. Um, so we'll see if, but you know, so far he's done a really good job of that. And I, I want to see more of that. I think uh, the world needs America playing a, a more positive role and a more, collaborative role and and so far he's he's been doing that well we'll see whether he uh, contributes more on that no easy task joe biden tonight uh, speaking in washington uh and broadcast literally around the world because a lot of people are going to watch this and they're going to be looking uh, for signals as to what to expect from the u.s in the uh, in the remainder of the biden term okay listen bruce thank you for this we'll let you put your old massey ferguson hat back on get back out there into the back 40 or in your case, the back one or whatever it is, it's a small plot, right? It's a smallish plot. <laughs> okay. Well, you get out there. 
We're all, all right. waiting. We're waiting for them radishes. And if you you've bet. got something to contribute to this conversation, um, don't be shy. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. For Bruce, I'm Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Thanks for listening to The Bridge on This Day, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.